welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. Tracy, I liked one of your uh, tweets this morning. <laughs> Which one? No, I mean, they're all good. I like all your tweets. But I liked your uh, chart comparing the uh, share price of uh, Tesla with the uh, price of uh, the cryptocurrency Ethereum and how closely they've tracked each other this year. Yeah, you know, I have a history of finding spurious uh, correlations between cryptocurrency and other assets, uh, the most famous one being Bitcoin and avocados. But I have to say, the Tesla versus Ethereum chart, I'm not sure it's actually that spurious a correlation. I think there's something there. Yeah, I mean, I do, too. And I was exactly going to say, I think the uh, the infamous Bitcoin price of Bitcoin versus the price of avocados one, that one was probably spurious. But I actually think that when you look at something like Tesla and Ethereum, it's not as spurious as, as that one was, or maybe people think. And in fact, there are like a lot of charts that all kind of look like that these days, even though they seem to be in very different asset classes and with uh, different fundamental uh, theoretical mm. drivers. Yeah, I think you tweeted one recently as well, which was, uh, wasn't it lumber versus uh crypto of some sort versus Tesla as well. And it was all moving in the same direction. Yeah, there's a good point. So it's like gold and Tesla and lumber and cryptocurrencies and just like a bunch of other stuff. Basically, all these charts sort of look the same these days. It's very strange. And a lot of people have been saying this, but it feels like everything is sort of all one trade right now. Yeah. And I think this gets to some of the frustration in the market currently, which is that the same things keep increasing in value, notably the tech stocks. And lots of people think that that shouldn't be happening, that that's irrational, that at some point the price movement should become self-limiting, i.e. the stocks themselves right. should become too expensive. And yet they just never seem to. People just keep buying and buying and buying and pushing up the valuation. Yeah. And I think the other weird thing is, is that like, you know, you look at, say, like te tech stocks flying to the moon and it's like mm. this is what people would call like risk on. Right. So people's like this usually is associated with, uh, you know, when you see valuations go up and you see stocks go up, one typically associates that with boom times. But the weird thing is also the simultaneous rally in assets that one doesn't associate with boom times. So gold obviously has had an incredible year. It's come off the boil a little bit lately. Treasuries have had an incredible year, although they're sort of like maxed out because rates are at long end, treasuries are at zero. So you have this simultaneous boom, not just in risky assets with different fundamental drivers, but also a weird like boom in safe haven assets and risk assets at the same time. And I think that's the part that really sort of throws people a loop, like gold and Tesla both looking the same. It's strange. Yeah, it's strange. Although I have a feeling that a lot of people would point out the um, the role of central banks in this and the flooding of liquidity and the idea yeah. that money has to work its way into some sort of asset, whether it's a traditional safe haven or something like a tech stock. And of course, some people are calling tech stocks safe havens now, which is kind of crazy um, compared to 10 years ago. But anyway, um, this yes, it's a big theme in the market. And I'm looking forward to this discussion. Great. So we are going to be talking about how everything has just become one big trade. Our guest uh, this week is really brilliant guy. I've loved uh, reading his stuff for a long time. Jared Woodard. He is the head of the Research Investment Committee at Bank of America, and he recently 
wrote a note exactly on this, the all one tradeness of the market. So, uh, Jared, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, I'm really glad to be with both of you. Thanks so much for having me. So it's not just our uh, illusion, right? I mean, it really does seem like everything is kind of the same right now. Is there a is that true? Is there an easy way to sort of demonstrate it quantitatively that it is all the same right now? It's not just sort of us playing tricks with terminal charts. (laughs) (laughs) I look, I I do the same tricky charts in Excel, so (laughs) I think you can choose your software. And, uh, and 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 make uh, some pretty bold claims. But I think there is some underlying truth to it. And there is a simple explanation. Um, this is a world in which two, two big features that have been with us for some time, uh, namely really scarce sources of, of growth, especially sources of profit growth, um, combined with the world of ample liquidity, as you mentioned. And when, when earnings growth is scarce, but there's lots of liquidity sloshing around, then investors will, you know, kind of do two things we know from the last 10 to 20 years. You know, the first thing they'll do is they'll bid up the price of those assets that can produce, you know, some cash flows and, and, and profits in a world with, where those are incredibly scarce. Um, they'll bid those up to very expensive levels, as you mentioned with tech, and there's lots of other examples. The other thing that they'll do is they'll buy things that basically function like call options in a way, even though they're they're not derivatives, that, you know, assets that maybe don't do anything right now, but might do something really big in the future. Um, cryptocurrencies might be a good example of that. You know, esoteric commodities linked to new products, new sources of energy, um, you know, futuristic technology, um, any kinds of asset that, that, that might really explode in value in some future scenario of the world, even if it's not giving you a cash flow today, you know, may become worth quite a lot. And, and so be worth buying today when liquidity is ample and, you know, there's really no alternatives in, in conventional um, investment, uh, you know, assets. So, so you know, fixed income, for example, you have treasury yields at record lows, um, corporate bond yields incredibly low. There's relatively scarce places to generate those kinds of returns. And so what we find are investors forming portfolios that are a kind of a barbell of the tech and, and maybe healthcare, maybe consumer discretionary stocks that can still grow their earnings in a reliable way, um, scarce as, as they are. Uh, so we'll bid up those on the one side of the portfolio, and then the other side is kind of your your liquidity trade, uh, slightly more speculative part where you you know buy something that might generate some outsized return someday, as long as it's not you know too expensive um, to own today. And you know the, the underlying dynamic here is one in which uh, there's a actually reasonable economic rationale. I think. I mean, just as as, as corporate profit growth is scarce, we know global economic growth is scarce. And so you're starting to see, I think, the kind of inequality on Wall Street that, that we've seen on Main Street for a very long time. Everyone knows about, you know, all those eye-popping, you know, uh, statistics about the, the relative, you know, size of uh, income and, and wealth controlled by, you know, vast numbers of people around the world relative to the, the, the handful of, of very wealthy folks uh, who control quite a lot more. And, and so um, if you think about that, I mean, one of my favorite statistics on this measure is Orrin Cass's cost of thriving index. So he go, if you go back to, I think, 1980, 1985, you know, the average uh, worker making, you know, median salary, um, it might take them, I think it was something like 20, maybe 25 weeks out of the year um, to, to earn enough money to pay for the big fixed costs that you have to have for sort of a comfortable, you know, middle-class life, a house, a car, education, healthcare, housing. So uh, you fast forward to today, and I think it takes like 53 weeks out of a 52-week year to pay for those same fixed costs. So the bottom line is, 
even if people can kind of get by, they certainly can't thrive. They certainly can't spend on things they like to spend because they, their, their income, so much of their income is consumed by the necessities. And, and whatever your, your politics are around that, I think the bottom line is that for a country like the United States in which consumption is you know, 60 to 70% of GDP, we can't ever expect to have breakout economic growth in, in, in an economy in which most people simply don't have enough income to, to spend on discretionary, you know, disposable kind of items. Well, that's, that's a familiar story. What's I think less familiar perhaps is, is the, the inequality that you're seeing that manifest on Wall Street, where you can look at the broad measures of corporate profitability across the United States, the national income product account, NIPA measure is a popular one, where if you look at that measure um, across all of corporate America, even including small, medium businesses, profits haven't actually really grown in dollar terms uh, since about 2014. I mean, if you, fa- you know, obviously excluding the pandemic and the, and the collapse in profits then, but if you go back to the start of 2020 before profits really took a nosedive, you know, corporate profits had flatlined for, for many years. Contrast that with the S&P 500, large cap, the really big winners, where profit growth has been continuing to explode, you know, upside led primarily by the, the six or seven big tech and, and sort of consumer stocks that we can all think about. Well, that kind of inequality on, on Wall Street, where just a handful of firms are able to generate the lion's share, both of profits and of, of market returns, um, is, is uh, I think, exactly the kind of dynamic you see in the, across the real economy. That's what drives people into these crowded trades. The intuition that we all have is, well, this is incredibly extreme. You know, this can't continue forever. This won't end well, et cetera. The problem is that if you bet against uh, that trend, you, you, you've gotten burned, I think, for, for quite, quite a long time. And so the next question that, that we always get asked is, what would cause a reversal or what would cause a change? Yeah, I, I think that's the big question. And we're definitely going to return to that topic. But just before we do, one thing I was wondering is, given this backdrop of slow economic growth and abundance of liquidity, how much does price of financial assets actually play into all of this? And I know it sounds weird, but one thing I, I often think about is if you can't make money through um, cash flow of companies because there's sluggish economic growth, then one way to actually make money is through asset price, asset prices going up. So it's kind of flows following flows, right? You're trying to target the thing where a lot of money is flowing into on the hopes that that's going to force the price up. Uh, and that's basically another way of, of monetizing. Is that something that you observe as well in, in the current um, environment? Well, we definitely see, you know, periods of speculative uh, flows kind of and price bubbles, um, which is maybe the a natural outcome of this kind of environment. Um, a lot of work done this year, I think, for example, on uh, flows among individual investors, especially, you know, younger and more tech savvy um, investors trading in different ways, trading different kinds of assets. Um, not sure how much those move the needle in, in overall dollar terms relative to the size of the market, but um, whether it's in the options market or in, or in uh, you know, just cash equities, um, you've certainly seen some of those big speculative flows. And I know that uh, if you look at a very simple measure, something like the, the price of the S&P 500 relative to its, its 200-day moving average, in recent weeks, that just that simple uh, ratio, I think, reached the highest level since, since 2009. Um, as we had this incredible rally fueled by the sense from at least some investors that you know markets are only going to go up for quite a while, and, um, and and when that gets reinforced by that ample liquidity, by 
Um, obviously, incredible fiscal support this year. It's a great recipe for for some speculative um, upside bubbles that that then get popped and and um, you know assets redistributed, perhaps into steadier hands. Kind of the the, the classic uh, old story. What doesn't change are the economic fundamentals and the, and the scarcity of that underlying growth. I really like the way you sort of characterized earlier the sort of some of these speculative assets, like a lot of popular tech stocks, is sort of being like a call option on um, some future outcome. And so you see incredible valuations for, say, cloud computing stocks. How much or say Tesla, which maybe one day will have an autonomous electric vehicle uh, on Mars or something like that, and somehow they'll make a ton of money on that. I'm curious, like one of the things is this sort of idea, the flooding of liquidity, the collapse in real interest rates, real interest rates are actually negative. How much that's really the part of the story? Because if you talk to cloud investors, they're like, oh, yeah, all these businesses are going to the cloud. Uh, If you talk to auto investors, like all these business, all these cars, whatever, like people have their individual stories. But how much is it is simply that when real interest rates are negative, people can afford to wait because they're not really losing any money in the short term by waiting for those profits that they expect to come rolling in in the year 2040. Look, I think I, I think it's, it's, it's certainly true that each individual industry has its own idiosyncratic drivers, but what gets people to invest and what you know, motivates those flows, I think absolutely is, is the broader macro story. Yeah. Um, just the overall value versus growth debate, I think captures this really well. Um, you know, we, we published recently, you know, on, on the fact that value versus growth over the past 10 years has just, you know, um, endured its, its worst period of returns in history, worse than the dot-com bubble. Yeah, that was a great chart you guys published. Uh, thank you. The, the, the bottom line is that, is that when, when growth is scarce, uh, you know, uh, growth stocks outperform. It's just really simple. But, you know, we tried to get a little bit deeper. If you look at the, just to, to sort of explain the, that ratio, value versus growth, we found that you could you could explain about 80% of the variance with, with just three variables. It was um, interest rates, uh, inflation, you know, expectations, inflation compensation, and, and the business cycle proxied by purchasing manager indexes. So those are three really common variables everybody looks at, and, and they, they account for about 80% of the variance. What that tells us is that for value to um, recover the losses this year relative to growth stocks, you'd have to see the 10-year treasury yield rise from I think like six, 0.6% today to, to 1.8%, you'd have to see five-year forward inflation you know, expectations rise to 2.5% and, and keep PMIs very stable in expansion territory. So that's a really big recipe, uh, you know, a really big uh, bill to, to fill. And, uh, and one reason why we think growth stocks can continue. Um, so it's absolutely, I think, a function of you know, very low expectations out into the future for growth and for inflation and driving a lot of those flows. You saw some great evidence of this, by the way, very recently when the Fed shifted its, its inflation you know, framework and, and, and the chair basically made it very clear that we're going to allow inflation to overshoot for some amount of time. On those days and in the, in the sessions in the market thereafter, there was, I think, a you know, pretty clear rotation out of some of those tech and other kind of growth names into things like financials and energy, precisely because I think investors realized that in terms of these longer dated you know, discounting cash flows back to the present. At some point in the business cycle, if we do get to meaningful wage growth in particular, again, 
you know, the Fed might really will be more tolerant. It's really remarkable. If you look at a chart, for example, of wages and, and just the, the Fed funds rate, how over the past three or four cycles, the Fed has always hiked interest rates just when, you know, the, the lowest income parts of the labor market really start to enjoy, you know, some of that juicy upside. And then they cut it off and you get a recession, you know, shortly thereafter. It's always happened in the past. What a coincidence. Yeah, right. And so, you know, uh, that's always happened in the past. It's always it's always bad news for growth. You know, although I'm 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 not quite the the sort of perennial optimist like some folks are about the Fed. You know, it does seem that if the Fed is is able to to make and meet this commitment, that if we do get in the next business cycle, you know, we start to see wages rise really meaningfully. If the Fed does sit on its hands and say, "Look, we're going to let this continue," um, it actually could mean at that future date, who knows how long it takes to get there. Um, it could mean some more meaningful upside, I think, for the economy and for inflation, um, investors are going to price that in. It doesn't mean a radical permanent shift now, um, but it does mean that I think that the distribution of returns can tilt a little bit more in favor of value you know, in that sort of right-hand tail future state of the world. Yeah, it could actually be different this time, or at least the Fed's framework is different. So you already touched on this a little bit, but uh, when it comes to something like the tech stocks or, you know, the typical things that people like to say are in bubble territory, what will be the thing that sparks the big reversal? Uh, You just mentioned inflation and the return of some wage growth potentially, and maybe the Fed being more patient than it used to be um, when it comes to that. But is, is there anything else that, that you see that could sort of spark that big uh, repositioning? Well, there's, there's one sort of markets-related catalyst that could happen anytime. Uh, and then there's a policy-related catalyst that, that I, th- I think we could look for as well. The markets one is, I mean, you know, I wonder whether this sort of value underperformance, for example, or, or just the kind of returns we've seen lately, cause investors to, to look at their accounting again and, and think twice about the way that they're interpreting and understanding uh, corporate actions and, and businesses. If you think about a conventional value uh, index, you know, price to book sort of a ratio. Well, what goes into that book value? It's, it's it's assets minus liabilities, but the assets that typically are included are are mostly just tangible assets. Um, we saw one estimate from a third party uh, claiming that in S and P 500 companies, intangible assets actually account for 84 percent of their of their total assets. Now. <laughs> I think that number is a little bit high. It just sounds high to me. But but even if you think it's only, you know, 50 or 60, I mean, it's a, it's a huge amount of, of work that's not being accounted for in a lot of conventional models. Things like patents, the output of R&D, the training that goes into a workforce, customer loyalty, brand value, whatever that's worth. I mean, these things aren't worth zero dollars. It should be included. And if you, if you do include them, there's some academic research and some in, independent work that our team has done suggesting that if you include intangible assets in the formula for a company's book value, you can improve the returns to a value strategy by, you know, more than three percentage points a year versus a conventional benchmark. And that's a pretty meaningful, uh, you know, meaningful result. If you throw in a couple other tricks, things like a quality filter, um, a, a small cap value bias rather than a large cap, you can boost returns by another two to three percentage points altogether, some pretty meaningful hmm. outperformance. And I wouldn't be surprised to see investors start to rethink their models of, of how companies are built and what, what they look like in the future in a way that could shift some flows in a meaningful direction toward companies that we don't typically think of as, you know, as value stocks. We think about the, the winners and losers in this market. We mentioned tech a lot. 
and, and maybe I would include healthcare and some consumer discretionary as the big growth sectors. I think that's been true historically. And the same, by the same token, our work shows that value indexes traditionally have been really overweighted into, into financials um, and energy. But if you start to include intangible assets as actually credible, you know, meaningful parts of what makes a company worthwhile, then financials and energy don't get quite the big overweights that they, that they would today. And you can actually, as a value investor, go into some sectors that people don't typically uh, think of, things like you know, healthcare, even a little bit of tech, even uh, some others. So um, I think that could happen. That could meet, cause a meaningful shift within the market. It obviously doesn't affect the broader economy uh, you know, in, in a first order way. But I think the more important shift to, to look out for, something we've worked on a lot this year, is what happens in public policy over the next several quarters, next several years. Because we know that if fiscal, if monetary policy does what it does, we talked about that already, that's not going to move the needle independently. It just kind of affects what happens really in some far off distant land of, of a really hot economy. Um, and if fiscal policy, I, I, we've argued, only remains limited to providing you know, sort of life support when it's absolutely necessary, the kind of work that we've seen this year. Uh, look, this is the biggest and, and fastest fiscal expansion in U.S. history outside of World War II. It's been incredibly powerful, incredibly important. But all it does is get us back to where we sort of started the year. If that's the most we can achieve, we're, we're not going to break out of this world of sort of secular stagnation and scarce, uh, scarce growth. To see a, a, a level shift, kind of elevation to a new tier of, of growth and productivity requires new investment. Um, especially, I think, industrial policy. Um, this has worked really well in the past in the United States, in South Korea, in Japan, in Germany. I mean, basically any modern economy that you look at over the past 100 years um, hasn't gotten to where it is today, any modern industrialized economy, without some cooperation between the public and private sector when it comes to incentivizing research, boosting productivity in key industries, protecting nascent industries for a little while from competition until they can stand on their own two feet. And, and, and sometimes even government as a ready buyer. All that to say, things are changing, I think, not just in Washington, D.C., but around, uh, around the world, as countries realize that you know, competition globally is going to require a little bit more than a kind of a laissez-faire, hands-off attitude. And so if, if governments continue the path that I think they've started this year, I mean, we tracked uh, 15 to 20 different bills in Congress just this year, many with broad bipartisan support designed to incentivize uh, research and development and CapEx um, in, in, in the direction of new technologies. And if companies uh, you know, get those benefits, get those incentives, and governments really push in that area, I think you could actually see a big boost to productivity. That's exactly what happened in the U.S. during the Cold War. So that's the scenario, I think, uh, a combination of, of supporting consumption, but also incentivizing you know, productivity that could get us to a new growth scenario and, and actually cause a really profound shift in the kinds of portfolios that'll work well. So if I'm hearing you correctly, then the best thing for the uh, financial industry or finance stocks and the oil industry would be a huge uh, Biden and Democratic sweep and a massive fiscal stimulus. And so probably the two industries that we most associate with antagonism, perhaps towards uh, tax and spend and Democrats and liberals would actually theoretically benefit the most from the uh, such an outcome. I, I can't, I can't, I can't go all the way with you, Joe. I know, I know you can't say that. I know, I know. But you can nod. 
I know no one can see your face <laughs> because we're just doing it on audio, but you could just sort of nod that that's kind of a potential implication. Well, whoever, I mean, uh, who, whoever, whatever political coalition gets it done, I don't think matters all that much. Right. And we could handicap which, you know, who's more likely under which scenarios. But I, I, I can agree with the bottom line, which is that if you do see a big surge uh, into uh, new forms of investment um, that, that can boost productivity, then yeah, that's the most bullish scenario for the most highly cyclical, you know, inflation sensitive parts of the market, which are financials and materials and industrials and energy. Um, I would just note that historically, you've seen this kind of investment and 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 sort of productivity booms happen under you know administrations of both parties. So I don't think anyone has a right. uh, you know a lock on this, but um, but that is the, that is definitely the most plausible scenario that we can see for a, a shift to a higher level of growth from where we are today. So I know we're talking about big changes in the environment that could spark that long-awaited rotation from growth to value. But is there anything in the meantime that you think investors could do to sort of tweak their models or to, I don't know, reappraise the way they're actually looking at value stocks? So for instance, you talked a lot about intangibles. Uh, is that something investors should be adding to price to book value in order to compensate for the modern economy? Or is is there anything else that people can do now rather than just waiting for the economic environment to change significantly? Yeah, absolutely. Um, within an equity, the equity part of a portfolio, there absolutely are some tweaks that that investors can make. You know, bargain hunters or folks with a value, you know, bias sort of psychologically can, uh, I think can and should add intangible assets to their calculation. Even if you don't think that every dollar of goodwill on a company's balance sheet is a rock solid asset the way that a, you know, a, a, a manufacturing plant might be, it's also not worth nothing. And right now, you know, again, a, a lot of conventional measures treat those intangibles as worth literally nothing or, or, as, or as simply as expenses. Like R&D, for example, doesn't only shows up as an expense unless a company gets acquired and then the R&D can be you know, capitalized as goodwill. But <laughs> bottom line is there's a lot of value strategies today and value indexes and so on that, that simply haven't, you know, they, they were based on uh, the economies of decades ago and, and before that on beloved Graham and Dodd sort of, you know, snippets from their books. And, you know, that's all great. Uh, the economy has changed. And I think our investment, you know, approaches can change with it. So we investors absolutely should include intangibles. And I think, you know, as I mentioned, history suggests that that can really improve returns. The other two things I hinted at before, but I think are worth really worth implementing, is to to add a quality filter. My colleagues in, in research have, have done some great work on this too, suggesting that in point of fact, as economies change, sometimes there are dead industries or dead businesses that that have to be completely rethought or simply aren't investable. You know, a horse and buggy manufacturer at a certain point had a great price to book ratio, but it you know never quite came back. And, and I think there may be some lines of business in companies today that, that might you know be facing a similar fate. Adding you know filters for the quality of a company's earnings and, and, and the quality of their business historically has added about a percentage point a year, I think, to returns. And and the and the small versus large debate is really interesting too. Small cap value stocks have always performed better than large cap value stocks. There's data going back to the 1920s for US equities. And that's always been true. And even in this period where value overall has performed 
uh, so terribly versus growth in a really ahistorical, unusual way over the past decade, even over this period, that that um, bias in favor of small cap value has actually continued to work well. So I think that's still worth preserving. That That's another sort of two percentage points a year or so about performance. And those are things that investors can do today. That's within the equity sleeve. For fixed income people, I think the world is even more difficult. You know, there's a lot of discussion since we sort of floated our end of 60-40 thesis last year. It's been a kind of a perennial topic. And the bottom line is, there's no great answer in a world of very low yields for, for you know, fixed income folks. But I think the only solution that makes any sense at all is to allocate a little bit away from, from treasuries that pay you nothing. And in fact, obviously float that you're faced with negative real uh, interest rates on those assets and to shift into different kinds of risk. I mean, um, whether it's credit risk or something more equity-like in terms of preferreds or convertibles or you know, REITs, there's, there's, there are places still to get some credible yield today. And if you agree with, with our outlook that you know, we're not on the cusp of a second dip of, you know, into a deep recession or, or something even worse, then this point of the business cycle looks like a moment in which a little bit of extra credit risk or, or even some equity-like risk certainly seems preferable for an investor with an income target to hit than you know, to simply cross your fingers in government bonds and hope that it all uh, works out. Those are things that investors can and should do today. And I think that the economic environment um, is, is pressuring people more than ever to start to rethink how they construct those portfolios. So the bottom line is, although we could get this shift, a major policy shift, there are things that investors can do. There is an alternative between the sort of like hardcore Graham and Dodd book value side on one side and the put it all on Tesla and Ethereum on the on the other hand, like we don't have to choose like maybe like, OK, a policy shift would be preferable and that's great. But in the meantime, uh, there are sort of options in the middle. Absolutely right. That's right. I want to go back to something you said about the Fed and its uh, inclination to somehow it always seems to raise rates just as the uh, lower end of the income uh, spectrum was starting to see wage growth. And maybe that's just some accident. Maybe it's a conspiracy or whatever, maybe something in between. But I'm curious whether we basically live in a society where the elites or the very wealthy people don't really prefer growth. We're this sort of like the growth famine, the growth scarcity that we have right now is better for people who are very rich because their wealth and their standard of living is more tied to asset valuations than it is from, say, GDP going from 3% in a year to 4% in a year. It's a, this is a tough question and it's a really sensitive question. And I'll give you, I'll give you two answers. And I'm not sure, honestly, I'll give you two answers. I'm not sure which one I believe in totally. The first answer is is the more sort of politically radical one, which is is that is to say that 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 yes, actually, you know, holders of capital would just rather see, you know, profits, um, and and will go down the ship with with the ship, you know, uh, until there's the last drop of profit has been squeezed, no matter what the cost or what the harm is to the broader society. I don't know that I believe that, but there is a great old essay called "The Political Aspects of Full Employment." by a fairly famous economist, uh, Michal Kaletsky, who's kind of a rival to, to Keynes, and a lot of people think sort of came up with some of the same ideas around the same time and doesn't get nearly as so much credit. And he argues in that essay that, in fact, you know, the reason that there's often, you know, what we call a standing army reserve of, of, of unemployed 
folks has much more to do with the desire for owners of capital and owners of businesses to keep labor, you know, sort of well-disciplined uh, so that they can generate good returns and, and, and so on. And it is politically radical. I'm not, I'm not necessarily endorsing the, the, the sort of the view, but I think you can certainly see uh, a trend, at least in the United States, in recent decades between decreasing, you know, power of labor negotiations, increasing power of owners of capital, um, and decline in things like capacity utilization rates of manufacturing, decline in demand, decline in inflation. As you know, more and more capital gets concentrated in relatively fewer and fewer hands, the bottom line is that folks who have a lot of, of cash don't tend to spend it quite as much. They tend to save it. People who don't have that much capital, when they get a little bit extra, they'll, they'll, they will spend it. And, and so you don't have to be a political radical to think that getting a little bit more capital into the hands of people who will you know, circulate it in the economy is, is a pretty great way to boost demand in a time when demand is scarce. The other, the other answer to this, and this is a little bit more sunny side, you know, kind of things will all work out in the end view, at least by, via the market, is, is something I mentioned before, the fact that we're seeing increasingly more inequality in, in Wall Street hmm. to mirror that kind of inequality on Main Street, meaning that as, as returns get more scarce and profits get more scarce, even if, Joe, you're right, that maybe owners of capital are content to just squeeze things forever as, as much as possible, uh, no matter what, I think what you're seeing these days, and you see it in, in kind of valuations and tech and growth and so on, is um, increasing pain for owners of capital, whether it's a, a, someone buying a treasury note, you know, holding their nose and getting six, 60 basis points of yield, uh, or someone buying an expensive tech stock, holding their own and hoping, holding their nose and, and just taking whatever future cash flows might eventually come their way. Increasingly, owners of capital are feeling the pressure and the pain and, and are starting to think. That's why I think politically, as I mentioned before, you're seeing some really broad bipartisan support this year. In this, it's, it's an election year. It's incredibly hostile political environment. And yet somehow, for example, the Senate was able to pass a bill um, a few months ago authorizing $25 billion for, billion for semiconductor manufacturing in the United States. Bipartisan co-sponsors passed easily, and they're, they're working on more things in that direction. That doesn't fit the narrative of sort of owners of capital, you know, fighting new policy measures, no matter what it takes. And I think uh, without getting into it too much, the, some of the movements you've seen in political coalitions in the United States on the left and the right have started to incorporate more uh, discussion about whether it's universal basic income, uh, job guarantees, modern monetary theory on, on the left, on, on, on the right, you know, um, nonprofits talking about whether maybe we do need a better deal for working families and Maybe labor unions are part of that. I mean, things that were unthinkable, I think, politically in both parties 10 years ago are suddenly very thinkable today because increasingly the bottom line, I think, is that many owners of capital, including regular investors, uh, are starting to realize they're actually in the same boat with many workers. And if they don't find a new sort of negotiated settlement of the sort that we had across the Western world after World War II um, in many countries, um, if we don't find a new settlement, then things are going to go badly, not just for working people, but increasingly for, you know, people trying to invest as well. Jared, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining us. This is sort of, you know, we had a conversation uh, recently with Paul McCulley and touched on some of these things, but this felt like a really nice sort of part two to that in terms of really diving into some of the portfolio implications of policy and uh, you know, this sort of long-running inequality. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Good to connect with both of you. Thanks, Jared. That was really good. 
So I guess the lesson, Tracy, is that inequality is why Tesla and Ethereum trade exactly the same. It's kind of funny how every investment discussion nowadays ends up uh, touching on on Marx, right? Like, I don't know, it it yeah. just seems inevitable nowadays. But and you know, I'm joking slightly, but I will say I, I agree with Jared that there does seem to be a growing recognition of the need for some sort of policy shift, even at places like the Federal Reserve. We did see the Fed put out a working paper, I think it was last month or something, talking about how uh, the growth of big corporations had uh, increased inequality and basically caused sluggish growth and all of that. And there is this ongoing conversation about monopsony, this idea of uh, monopoly power in the labor market. So it feels like yeah. there is this recognition, but change is slow. Change is super slow. But, you know, I think, look, it's like the you look at the market and you have this everything is the sameness about mm. uh, the different asset classes. So it's like, OK, we have to look bigger. It almost forces a zooming out. Like if energy and financials are the same trade, if Tesla and Ethereum are the same trade, if gold is the same trade as uh, Snowflake, the popular cloud computing <laughs> IPO that just came out, if all of it is the same, we essentially, as market uh, observers, commentators, have no choice then to zoom out and talk about the sort of like broader political and economic conditions that uh, created the sameness. Yeah, I think that's right. You can't really focus on micro. You're forced to talk about the macro. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, the other thing I was thinking was we should do a deeper dive on intangibles at some point. Yes, I think we actually have one scheduled because um, I, I think in a future episode, we're going to be talking to uh, Michael Mobison, who we've had on uh, before, but he just came out with a uh, pretty great sort of white paper on valuing intangibles. So I think people who are interest, interested in that uh, should stay tuned. But can I just say something about that? And I meant to joke about it with uh, Jared, but. Do you think it's kind of cheating? It's like oh, value investing doesn't work. So let's find a way to explain how Peloton and Tesla are actually value <laughs> stocks. Like it's kind of cheating. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of fudging that you can do around intangibles. And I think Jared yeah. touched on this, but it's I mean, the accounting for intangibles is kind of insane. So it's really easy to to make the numbers look a lot bigger than they are. So just saying that everyone should factor in intangibles along with traditional price to book ratios, it's kind of much easier said than done. If you're looking at intangibles, yeah. you actually have to do a deep dive into how those intangibles are being portrayed on a company's balance sheet. And again, this sort of, sorry, now I'm going to go on a rant, but this gets to- no, it's fine. One of the, <laughs> One of the things that I've been saying about the sluggish growth environment, which is that if you're, if you're a company and you can't grow through traditional ways like just growing your cash flow and your business, then one of the easy ways to grow is to buy a bunch of other companies and do addbacks and you know add intangible assets from your acquisitions, which makes you appear to be growing faster than you actually are. And I think we've seen some examples of that in the current economic cycle as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that's sort of like, um, yeah, like these P.E. roll ups and other mm. sort of it's like you could sort of grow two ways. You can grow by creating a really red hot software company that everyone, every other company has to use. Or you can essentially do it by financial engineering and credit 
which turns uh, which uh, turns my meager cash flows into big cash flows. Yeah, exactly. And so just saying, oh, look at the intangibles. Sure, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But on the other hand, it, it's not a sort of bulletproof way of investing either. I, so mm. I swear I read an interview with some value manager a couple of years ago. I think it was like at Barron's and they're like, this value manager made a bunch of money. How did he do it in a time when value wasn't good? And his basic answer really was like, oh, I I basically came up with a framework where Netflix is a value stock. Yeah. So I invested in Amazon and Apple as a value play. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Warren Buffett bought bought Apple. So, <laughs> okay. There's, you know, if he did it. All right. Anyway. Clearly, we could talk about this for a while, but we are going to come back to it in a future episode, which will be good. Looking forward to it. Shall we leave it there? Yeah. All right. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. And you should follow our producer on Twitter, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcasts, Francesca Levy at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts under the handle at podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>